Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started today, I'd love you to go to lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. That's lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. Join the army that's going to help at the grassroots level make sure that pro-democracy candidates are victorious this November and get us into 2023 with a safe and healthy democracy. Only you can do it. Again, lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. This is part two of our conversation with Lincoln Project senior advisors, Trigby Olson and Jeff Timmer, about the 2022 midterm elections. The stakes, our strategies, and what races we're looking at this year. If you didn't catch part one of our conversation, I welcome you to give it a listen. Now, let's resume our conversation with Trig V. Olson and Jeff Timmer. All right, so guys, let's turn, you know, specific to some of these places. So let's talk about how you rated these races, how you scored them. And as you guys were talking about at the beginning, scoring the election itself, not necessarily a particular office or race. So Trig just give us a little insight into the brain power here. Yeah, so the idea of looking at things election by election, primaries, generals, all of them is just election. I got to give Timmer credit for that. We were on a call and we were throwing around trying to look at it in a traditional way. And Timmer's like, why aren't we just looking at these as elections, regardless of office? Because we were like, where's the Secretary of State of Michigan's race fit into this? So that part was kind of genius. And then as I was kind of working through it, I was like, all right, well, we should score these based on how, you know, what are the important factors that really stand out. And so the process of this, and I think Timmer and I were channeling our best NFL GMs during the course of draft week. It was kind of like that. I mean, we basically compiled as much information as we could on all of these elections. And we basically just started walking through race by race by race and talking about them and saying, all right, how important is this to 2024? Why is that the case? What does the district look like? And Timmer would be on Dave's redistricting, digging down and being like, well, you know, the Scranton suburbs swung at 2% between 16 and 18. And so this is a little more important than that one. And then it was, then it was a question of putting together almost like a draft board. You know, how does Slotkin's race in Michigan compare to Spanberger's compare to the primary for secretary of state or the Republican primary for governor in Arizona in terms of how we have it scored. That really was the process. I mean, it's just a really deep dive into every one of them. Jeff, let me ask you this, because we were all so, with the exception of the last two plus years, we all saw it as, okay, Republicans got to win here. Talk to me a little bit about the taking yourself out of that mindset and thinking about how you started to really put the scoring together because it is non-traditional. Right. When scoring races, you know, there's kind of the fallback index, you know, whether it's the PVI that Charlie Cook came up with. 
everybody uses that to some degree or another. You know, some call it something different. They have their own score, but it takes election history and, you know, looks at some kind of trends over time or averages over time and says, all right, you know, in a state like Pennsylvania, in an off-year election, it's kind of a plus two Republican. And we said, okay, that may or may not be. That's going to be something that we factor into one of our scores. But we needed to come up with something that was more of a dynamic, as I mentioned earlier, democracy index or democracy PVI. And so that's where we started looking at these different factors. You know, what role is this particular race going to have? Who wins this race in 2022 going to have on the outcome of 2024, potentially? What is it going to mean for control of the process in that state? Or we got down to looking at who wins Pennsylvania 8? Is that going to matter who controls Pennsylvania's congressional delegation? Should we get to that unlikely scenario where the winner of the presidential election is decided by delegation in the House of Representatives? And then where do the candidates fall on the illiberalism scale? If it's Robeson in Arizona far or Kemp in Georgia, they've demonstrated that they're less likely to be illiberal, to put their thumb on the scale in an unfair way than Carrie Lake would or that David Perdue would. And so we came up with a, it's largely subjective using some objective measurement. We had to look at this and kind of come to a consensus based on all the information that's out there and our own experience with these candidates in these states and these races. Well, let's just say this, that given the fact that polling has been abysmal as far as saying what something was and then what it ended up being, I'll take y'all's subjective experiences and beliefs mixed with enough objective data points uh, over somebody with an 800 sample in the state the size of Pennsylvania, assuming they know everything. All right, so let's do this. All right, so you guys created the WAMP states, and we've already talked about a, a bunch of these, but let's get into them. In so the WAMP states, they're Wisconsin, Arizona, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. So why don't we just start with Trigvi, the cheesehead nation of Wisconsin. So we've talked about this. We've got a governor's race. We've got a U.S. Senate race. So talk to us a little bit about what's going on there. One of the things that Timmer and I looked at extensively once we kind of started to put the board together is how do those pieces fit together? You know, so when we looked at it, there were two races in the nation that scored a hard 20. 20 is the highest that you could get. One was the governor's race in Michigan. The other was the governor's race in Wisconsin. The reason that we scored the governor's race slightly higher, we scored the Senate race somewhere 16 to 18, depending on what happens in the Democrat primary. The governor's race is going to drive the Senate race, turnout-wise in the state, et cetera. So you have that governor's race that's a huge deal. Then you have the Senate race with Ron Johnson. If the Republican wins the governor's race, it's probably an 85% chance Johnson wins the Senate race. On the other hand, if Evers wins, could Johnson prevail? Yeah, he could, but it's pretty unlikely. The other races in Wisconsin that matter a lot, the attorney general's race, because that is a important check on what's going on with the state legislature. The Wisconsin three, where Ron Kind, who is in one of those 13 districts that voted for Trump and a Democrat is retiring. And that race is interesting because you have a Republican who is at the Capitol. He didn't go in on January 6th, who had run before, almost beat Kind. But it gets to another sort of under-the-radar screen election that's going on that our listeners might be interested in, and that's the Senate Democrat primary. Evers' chances and Johnson's chances increase 
or decrease depending on who gets through that primary. And so that's kind of how we looked at it. In that Democrat primary, we actually scored 15 because you have three candidates, one from Milwaukee, one's the lieutenant governor, and one's a woman who was a homemaker, became the state treasurer, and her first act as state treasurer was to try and sign herself out of business because she said, why do we have a state treasurer who's elected? We should just have a treasurer of the state who's a bureaucrat. She comes from western Wisconsin, where that congressional district is. So when you look at Wisconsin, the drivers are going to be that governor's race and what happens in that Senate Democrat primary. That's a unique way to look at races that I don't think anybody else is doing. And then we've scored them relative importance. So that's Wisconsin. All right. So then, Jeff, let's talk about Arizona a little bit. We've talked about Carrie Lake versus Robson in the Republican gubernatorial primary. Katie Hobbs is leading in the Democratic gubernatorial primary. She's the current secretary of state. She, you know, held the line against all these other folks. In the Senate race, obviously, you've got Mark Kelly's, the incumbent senator, husband of Gabby Giffords. In the Republican Senate primary, you've got Mark Burnovich, the attorney general, who would not go along with Trump. And so Trump has just been all over him. And there's recent polling showing him starting to tank. Tell us about uh, Blake Masters and the other guy. The way we looked at it was kind of like Blake Masters was like a, you know, a James Bond supervillain candidate in this race. Much like his benefactor, Peter Thiel, in real life. Right. Just like Thiel. He would be a very illiberal choice. He's running on a platform of decertifying the 2020 election. It was stolen from Donald Trump. You know, all of that nonsense. But we step back from kind of the national, I don't know, spotlight or sexiness of that Senate race. It's very high profile. Mark Kelly is, you know, an action hero. I mean, he's an astronaut and his wife is this larger than life sympathetic figure in the state, deservedly so. And he, even though that race isn't likely to drive the turnout in the race, the resources that he's amassing is going to have a tremendous effect on the Democrats' ability to win that race, that governor's race, and be competitive not only then in Kelly's race, but in a couple of these congressional races and perhaps in the legislative chambers as well in Arizona. We recognize that none of these races occur in a vacuum and they all impact each other differently and they're going to matter in different ways where the governor's race clearly is going to matter more in the ultimate survival of democracy after 2024 and the certification of Arizona's votes than whether or not Mark Kelly is in the Senate but Mark Kelly running a strong race and funding the rest of the Democratic ticket and the Democratic turnout strategy in the state is going to be very, very critical to that happening. So Kelly can win and Hobbs could lose. If Hobbs wins, Kelly's won by a bigger amount. But it also bleeds down, you know, when you talk about control of the House, there's two House districts. One is Schweikert's, which is, he's always been a vulnerable target. That district's changed. It's now northern Maricopa County, so kind of Scottsdale-ish, northern Phoenix. And then you have Arizona 6, which is down in the southeast corner of the state along the border. Open Kilpatrick seat, yeah. Yeah. And um, both of those are going to depend to a large degree on Kelly and then Hobbs not really having a lot of ticket splitters. You know, I think Mark Kelly kind of fits. He holds the seat that John McCain and Barry Goldwater had. He's got a little bit of a maverick in him in that same way. Hobbs just doesn't have that. She's just a traditional candidate. 
I was down there just a few weeks ago meeting with a bunch of folks, and I posited this because I was like, do you think folks will really vote for like a Carrie Lake or a Blake Masters? And, you know, they said everything's going to be close, and that should be our disclaimer. These will all be close races. It will all be Rick's game of small numbers. But there's also a feeling amongst Arizonans, and Phoenix does very much have a feeling of a city on the move. It is a state that is exploding in population, you know, a lot of Californians moving in, a lot of Texans moving out. They don't want to be the Florida of the West. Like, they don't want to be the freak show state. The economy, it's functional, full employment there. Folks have real issues. There are real border issues. But they do want people who are going to be serious about their jobs. Whether or not you like Doug Ducey or Mark Burnovich or not, like, they did their jobs. They did their jobs as pretty conservative Republicans, right? That's what their job was. They upheld elections, right? They told Trump to go pound sand, right? And they did those things. So trading Ducey for Lake, to me anyway, my gut says probably a bridge too far. But again, that's all things being equal. All right, let Jeff, let's go back to you because you are at home in, I was going to say the Wolverine state, but I know that I would be in bad, you would look at me poorly if I said that. So the Spartan state, let's call it that. There's certainly a great opportunity here for the Democrats to run the table in Michigan. They hold all three of the major statewide elected offices, the governor, the secretary of state, and attorney general. All three of those positions are very critical in their own way to the certification of the 2024 election results. If the Republicans were to get all three, that's real trouble for democracy. If the Democrats hold all three, that's great for democracy. If there's some kind of split decision this election, that doesn't mean that democracy has lost. It means that we're going to have some litigation perhaps coming out of 2024 where we get two different slates of electors coming out of Michigan. And let me just also say that having been up there with you and Trigby a few months back, these are also three women who are, I think, not only doing the jobs they need to do, I think, very effectively, but also great candidates and great for their races. They are. They've got great records to run on. They get the kind of the scope and the magnitude of these elections and, and their place in history. And the Republicans are playing into their hands. The Republicans just this last weekend had a nominating convention where they choose the candidates for secretary of state and attorney general are not chosen in a statewide primary. They're chosen by 2,000 Republican insiders at a convention that just happened. And it was a real battle between Donald Trump-endorsed candidates versus non-Donald Trump-endorsed candidates. And the Trump-endorsed candidates won. And surprise, they're crazier than shit. They are a target-rich environment for secretary of state Jocelyn Benson and attorney general Dana Nessel to run against. We just also had the candidate filing deadline come to pass a couple of weeks ago, and there's a, the largest field ever on the Republican side for governor. There's 10 candidates who filed nominating petitions, and there's five who are arguably kind of in the leading tier of candidates, and three of those might not make the ballot. We're going to find out in about three weeks. There's sufficient problems with their nominating petitions that the three leading candidates, the biggest self-funder in the race, the Detroit police chief, and the conservative commentator woman, Tudor Dixon, might all be thrown off the ballot due to deficiencies in their petitions. But all that being said, you mentioned Garrett Saldano earlier. They're all kooks to varying degrees. They're all vying for that Trump endorsement and none of them are even pretending to try to put on that Patagonia vest and beat Glenn Youngkin. 
which is the perfect opportunity for Gretchen Whitmer to run against whoever it is that comes out of this primary in August. Yeah, like the Garrett Saldano guy, and I took notice of him when we were up there, like his first ad, guys, he's like this muscle bound dude. You know, I think he's got some tats. He's got his like, don't tread on me shirt on and he's at a firing range right with his gigantic rifle you know boom 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 it turns out he's a goddamn chiropractor like no offense to chiropractors but like when i think about chiropractors like i'm not like oh my god like he's the toughest guy like oh my chiropractor you know shoots ar-15s at the range with his kid like it's incongruous to me definitely definitely and michigan is the one of these big states that doesn't have a u.s senate race this time around But there's those key races down ballot, the Secretary of State and Attorney General's race, which are very critical in the preservation of democracy in 2024. And then there's some key congressional races. There's really four races now after this nonpartisan, bipartisan redistricting commission has set aside gerrymandering and kind of carved up Michigan's congressional delegation much more evenly. There's an opportunity here for Democrats to definitely establish control of the congressional delegation or that Republicans can control the congressional delegation. And that has implications potentially after 2024 as well. All right. So in the Womp states, Trigby, bring us home on Pennsylvania. Yeah. So Pennsylvania obviously has a high profile governor's race. It's got a Senate race that's getting more attention because of the primaries, right? You got McCormick, who's like this billionaire hedge fund guy married to Dina Powell, who's a Trump administration official. George W. Bush administration, Goldman Sachs. The whole deal. He's running against Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz is full on Mike Lindell, MAGA. I'm sure he sleeps on a pillow every night. And then you have Fetterman and Lamb. And Fetterman has kind of opened up a lead. Oz has opened up a slight lead since he got endorsed by Trump. Now, the unique thing about that Senate race is for voters on each side, if it's Oz versus Fetterman, what Democrats who are listening need to understand is, is that for a lot of Republicans, Fetterman, who has embraced some elements of Bernie Sanders kind of progressive socialism, he's going to be seen as a full-on socialist. And they view Oz as the defender of that. And of course, rightfully so, Democrats will see Oz as a threat to democracy. I don't believe Fetterman is a threat to democracy and we didn't score him that way, but he will be perceived that way by some voters. What's interesting is right now with the primaries coming up, that Senate race, because it's getting so much attention and the primaries being so high profile, is going to be what draws people in to vote. In the general election, though, it's going to be the governor's race between Shapiro and whoever is the Republican that comes through that is going to be the driver. It's interesting because The current leader in the Pennsylvania Republican primary is full-on MAGA. The establishment of the Republican Party in Pennsylvania, sort of the Tom Ridge wing, for lack of a better term, they are desperately trying to unite behind someone to be sort of the establishment standard bearer. They've got a couple of pro-business candidates. It's unclear whether that will happen or not. It's going to be that governor's race in Shapiro, I think, that drives the Senate race. And, you know, that's why we have that governor's race ranked just a tad bit higher. Obviously, if Oz gets the nomination, the stakes in that Pennsylvania race go up. And that's one of the things we looked at in these states, because Dr. Oz would be a full-on member of the Hawley-esque crazy caucus in the Senate Republican side. You also have four House races because of redistricting, eight, seven, 17, and 10, that 
have the potential, depending on which Republicans get through, to be real opportunities because they could be nominating people who are Aussian Pennsylvania Republicans, not moderate. That has the potential to open them up. Two of them are Democrat held. Two of them are Republican held. They tend to be a couple of them are on the uh, Jersey border, the border with New Jersey, sort of north of Philly. Like Wilkes-Barre and those kinds of places, yeah. Yeah. And then the other ones are far western, right on the Ohio border. One's the Connor Lamb seat. So Pennsylvania is going to be really, if you had to say one state that's ground zero, you know, it's Pennsylvania and Michigan are sort of the two that but are. But let me, let me ask you this. For the swing voters in Pennsylvania, Bucks County, the collar counties around Center City, Philly, if you live there and you look at Fetterman and you look at Oz, like, do you want anything to do with either one of these guys? I mean, I, I don't know John Fetterman. I'm sure he's a perfectly nice guy. But I'm just saying, to your point about perception, Trigby, and they will drive that perception, as we talked about at the top, as they have for 50 years. Fetterman seems to be a guy where the more you try and push him towards something that would be politically advantageous to him, the more he tends to react poorly and do what he wants to do just to show that he doesn't have to listen to anybody. Well, that's why Shapiro and the kind of campaign Shapiro runs is going to be incredibly important to how the macro in the state turns out. Because if, as would be the case right now, you get the Trumpist sort of running against him, and it's a state senator who called for overturning Pennsylvania's laws and was called by the 1-6 Commission, Mastriano. Yeah, and he was at the Capitol on January 6th. He was at the Capitol. You know, Shapiro is a grown up. What the Shapiro campaign would need to do, and hopefully the Fetterman campaign just sort of stays quiet and drafts off it, is they're going to have to say, these guys are an embarrassment. You know, we need grown ups. I'm going to provide maybe boring, but solid leadership. And I mean, that's the one thing, too, that I think we've seen is, you know, going back to Virginia. And again, we shouldn't overstate one state, as it were. We shouldn't overanalyze it or make it more important. But that race was not really driven along Trump lines, except, you know, towards the very end when it was too late to dial in Yunkin as sort of a Trump in mitt's clothing, such as it were. But it came down to things like education. Democrats didn't show up in the way they did. Older voters turned out a lot more for Yunkin than anybody thought they would. And I know I have some friends, Trigvi, you might be one of those people who, you know, live in Northern Virginia where their kids were out of school for nearly two years and they were pissed. And so these state issues do matter. And I guess that's my question is, if you're going to go full on MAGA in Pennsylvania or, or Michigan, and it's all about the border and it's all about pedophilia and it's all about Disney and all that other stuff, do you have some voters like, man, I just, I need you to fix the highways. <laughs> like, well, I'll tell you a big piece of it in a place like Falls Church, you know, which is more a Democrat stronghold. Right. Fairfax County. Yeah. And McAuliffe underperformed there. You know, he underperformed there in part because people were mad because they changed the name of the middle school from Thomas Jefferson to something else. It's surprising how many people I know who were like, I'm just done with this. This is ridiculous. And Thomas Jefferson, also a very highly regarded science and technical high school. The kind of place that like I would have dreamed to have gone to, except that I can't do geometry like at any level. But my broader point on that, though, Trigby, is that state issues do matter in state races, no matter how much a, a Saldano or one of these other nuts in Pennsylvania may try and nationalize it. Yeah. And I mean, Saldano made his name on 2020 and what happened. He also was a huge COVID guy. You know, if you're the Shapiro campaign and you, and you run as the heir apparent to Wolf, who is a pretty moderate Republican sort of 
you know, Rust Belt kind of governor versus Mastriano, that's a pretty good place. Now, here's the thing. This is the Rubik's Cube that Republicans find themselves in. If they do unite around a moderate, the moderate, whichever those that would be as the governor's candidate, well, then you got Oz out on a limb a little bit because that person is trying to run to the center and Oz is going to be running to the mega sort of side. So the key thing for engagement in these races for organizations like us is going to be looking at the individual dynamics in them and doing what we do best, which is mocking illiberals and getting inside their head and making them double down and make more mistakes. And Pennsylvania is certainly going to be a place where that's a possibility. There's a couple other states, though, that we should talk about, Reed. So we've got the WAMP states, but we also have, we should not neglect that there are other races that we're taking a look at out there. So, Trig, why don't you take us through those? Yeah, so we have a set of states that we call the NOVA states, capital N-O-V, lowercase a, and they house a bunch of races. So one is Nevada, where you have a Senate election, which Democrats really need to hold. You know, if Mark Kelly goes down, Democrats are not keeping the Senate. The Nevada Senate race is another one. Catherine Cortez Master. Yeah. So that particular race, we scored it in 18, which puts it, you know, in the top 10 or 15 in the country. She's running against Adam Laxalt, who, you know, is royalty by name in Republican politics. This is a race where Trigby, for me personally, having been out to Nevada a couple months back, where I'm very concerned, you know, alarm bells concerned. When I was out there, again, two months ago, 12 meetings over two days, Senator Cortez Masto's name ID, way too low. People don't know her here, right? When Harry Reid died, it left this gigantic vacuum in Nevada politics. And Governor Sisolak, I think, is doing the best he can, given all the nature of everything, especially given, you know, he's a Clark County guy. Cortez Masto's father was a legend in Clark County, Vegas politics. She has not made a name for herself. Last survey had her down, I think, three to a guy like Laxalt. And Laxalt, I think, is also a perennial loser, right? Like he's run a bunch and he's lost a bunch. It's one of those things where you've got to overperform in Clark. You've got to overperform in Washoe, which is Reno. You know, then you got Elko. And so there's sort of three hotbeds of votes in the state. And that's one that I'm really worried about. Yeah. And the problem is, is that if you lose that seat and there is a governor's race that's a little bit below it, if you lose that seat, though, you probably lose the governor's race. And in all likelihood, you put in danger the three Democrat House seats. They might not lose them all, but you could lose one of them that are all clustered around Vegas and the Vegas suburbs. There's a secretary of state's race there where there's this America first secretary of state goon running. There's an attorney general's race there. There's a lieutenant governor's race. So there's all these races where, again, Nevada, you could be overestimating its sort of reliability as a purple blue-ish state. Yeah. Now, the one thing that, you know, the reason why it's not in the WAMP state. Because it didn't work out for the acronym. No, we'd have made a different acronym. But the thing about the thing about Nevada is, right, in presidential politics, the last four cycles, it's gone Democrat. But it's so small that unlike the other four, right, you could win without Nevada. You, it, with the other ones, you got to win three of the four. It's harder for a Democrat to win the presidency without Nevada, but it's not impossible the way it is without Pennsylvania or Michigan. But I will say the other thing is, unlike Kelly, you know, Kelly is not going to lose in Arizona because of lack of resources. Or name ID, probably. Or name ID. 
but she is struggling. She's struggling on raising money too. She did, you know, Laxalt is raising a boatloads of national money. And that race has not been raising nearly as much. And this is what we're seeing and hearing too, which is there's this exhaustion on the Democratic side that is hitting at the exact wrong time. Right. The other end in the Nova States is New Hampshire. And Maggie San is a survivor. She caught a break when Sununu decided not to run against her because I think he just was looking at going and joining. Being governor of New Hampshire is a pretty good gig. Going and joining the, the Republican caucus in the United States Senate, probably not as much. But he's running for re-election. He is going to run strong. As I said, survivor, long history in the New Hampshire ticket splitting. But it's one to keep on the radar screen. The O is Ohio. You've obviously got the Senate race, which is marquee, and a couple of House races. You got Shabbat seat that Democrats could pick up. You got a couple of vulnerable Democrats. You know, if you lose in Nevada, you almost have to beat Johnson. Tim Ryan has to win, and you have to win in Pennsylvania. You got to win two of the three, and Warnock has to come through, and you can't lose anywhere else. Ohio, Ryan, he's the real deal. And this is Congressman Tim Ryan from Youngstown, Eastern Ohio, the Democratic nominee for that seat. He will be running against J.D. Vance. The governor's race, really not a huge deal in Ohio. I mean, DeWine's kind of like toast. Yeah, the only thing to watch there is DeWine is going to win, but does Renacy keep him below 50%? There's not a runoff state, but it's just a sign of some weakness in the Republican base of DeWine if he doesn't eclipse 50%. And we should try and find opportunities to put Vance and DeWine conflict them if there's opportunity. But it really is all about the Senate race in Ohio. Virginia has two really big Democrat seats that they have to hold. One's the Norfolk seat and the other is Spanberger's. They're going to have a hard time because those districts are basically evenly split. Both of them, you know, Spanberger has a background in intelligence in the Norfolk seat. It's two military candidates running against each other, and the Democrats want it. But both of those are going to be really hard because there aren't any big statewide races. And then the last one of the Nova states, the little A, is Alaska. And for those of you who are listening to this, Sarah Palin is running again. Will she win? Probably not. But one of the most important things that has to be done for the pro-democracy side is ensuring that when illiberal actors start to rear their heads after they've been suitably whacked in whack-a-mole, that they don't get back up. Putting her back on the national stage is a recipe for disaster for those who care about democracy. I want to give Trigby the credit for dubbing her, Sarah Palin the mother of MAGA. And in so many ways, that's true. She is the mother of MAGA. She just cannot be allowed to come back. I want to go back to something, you know, Trigby, that you've talked about within authoritarian power structures, which is it's a zero-sum game, how they see the rest of the world, but it's also a zero-sum game within it as well, which is they all hate each other more than they hate anybody on the outside because they're all angling for whatever the next rung up the ladder is, whatever the next money thing is. I mean, you saw this story last week of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert almost coming to blows because Lauren Boebert was upset that Marjorie Taylor Greene had gone to a white nationalist event. Like what? I mean, I don't know what. She didn't invite her along. I don't know. Yeah, maybe she was upset. She didn't get you can't sit with us or whatever it is. So do you believe that a lot of these Republican or even the most of these Republican, ultimately people who will be nominees, have over rotated on Trump? and the performative assholery. 
that would have an electoral effect, I guess. Remember, I say often that illiberal actors try and live in the moment, that their kryptonite is the past and the future. And so if you look at all these guys, J.D. Vance is a great example of this, right? He was totally anti-Trump, and then he went doubling down and doubling down and doubling down. You have to keep him tied in the past and the future and not let him just say whatever he has to say to get through in the present. I think the bigger opportunity in this, though, is the Republican Party's moment of reckoning is coming as these elections happen. And then they move into a process of trying to have a nominee for president. And there are going to be some opportunities to test and create divisions in that illiberal vertical. And we need to do that. We can't let people, through their silence, have it both ways on the establishment side. That's what I would say, I guess. For most of us who consider ourselves part of the coalition of the sane, the danger is underestimating the power of crazy. We look at these people like a Sarah Palin or a Dr. Oz or a Carrie Lake, where it's become kind of this badge of honor to not be able to use silverware or have table manners. We look at that and say it's kind of disqualifying, right? They're too crazy. They're too extreme. These people can win. And we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that they might win. And so we need to take them seriously because they are a serious threat. And we can't discount them just because they're so friggin' weird. I think that is a good admonition for me and for everybody else out there. All right, guys, we're finally going to let you get out of here. Trigvy, where can everybody find you online? Uh, they can find me at Trigvy Olson on Twitter is probably the easiest way. And Jeff, how about you? I am Jeff Timmer on Twitter. And as always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. want to thank all of you for hanging out for this fascinating double episode. Everybody, we'll see you next time, and thanks for listening. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And... We'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. 
the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.